Your pastor, uh, John Thompson, for whom I hold much admiration and affection, has asked me to preach today what is revealed in the second and third chapters of the last book of the Bible, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, the risen and reigning Jesus speaks seven messages to seven of his first century churches located on the landmass, which was then called Asia Minor and now called the country of Turkey. It turns out that through these seven messages to the seven churches of first century Asia Minor, Jesus is speaking a challenging and liberating word to all of his churches in every century in any city on the globe. Now, we do not have time today to read all seven of the messages out loud. So let me read three of the messages. Messages one, four, and seven. Listen to Jesus speak to the churches in Ephesus, Thyatira, and Laodicea. In a moment, you'll discover why I have chosen these three. Hear the word of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. 
Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with the iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I also will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then Revelation 3, beginning at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even so, Lord Jesus, grant us ears to hear what you're saying to us. In your name and for your glory. Amen. Challenging but liberating words. Let me remind us of the context in which Jesus speaks his messages. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple, who records Jesus' words for us, then in his late 70s, early 80s, is on the prison island of Patmos, just off the coast of Asia Minor. John had been sent there by the Roman government because he would not buy into the spirituality of the Roman Empire. Every government, every empire has an inner spirituality, a way of understanding what it means to be human, a way of then living out that understanding. The emperor at the time was a man named Domitian, who had ordered all citizens to acknowledge him as Domine et Deus, Lord and God. He did not care all that much if people believed in other lords and other gods as long as they worshipped him as Lord and God and then lived out that worship by living the spirituality shaped by such worship. All one had to do was go to one of the temples dedicated to one of the Caesars, take a pinch of incense, throw it on the altar, and say the words, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. John, 
and other disciples of Jesus could not abide this order. Caesar is Caesar, but he's only a human being. Caesar has a place in God's orchestration of human society, but Caesar is not Lord. He is not God. There is only one Lord and God, and his name is Jesus. So John refuses to act out the spirituality of the empire. And thus, he was sent off to Patmos, the place to which the Roman government sent criminals and political troublemakers. One Lord's Day, one Sunday morning, he was worshiping in the spirit, as John puts it in chapter one of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's given a vision, a life-changing vision. He hears a voice behind him, and then he turns to see the voice, <laughs> an interesting statement, and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus in a way he had never seen him before. And he sees that Jesus is standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. He's told that these seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches back on the mainland. Seven churches over which John served as a kind of bishop. In the middle. The risen and reigning Jesus is standing in the middle of the lampstands. Not above the lampstands looking down, but in the middle. And from the middle, Jesus then speaks seven messages to the seven churches. He is there and he is not silent. That's the way Francis Schaeffer of the 20th century would put it. He is there and he is not silent, which is why Jesus can speak such a personal word to each of the seven churches. He's there and he knows everything about the life of every one of those churches. And he is here. He's there in your midst and he's not silent. He's there in every church across Canada where his name is named and he is speaking. And because he is who he is, we ought to listen very carefully. Now, I want today to simply make two observations about Jesus' seven messages as a whole. The first observation will lead us to understand who Jesus thinks he is. The second observation will lead us to understand what he is always saying to every one of his churches in any age, in any city on the globe. Okay, observation number one. You may have noticed that I have been referring to the content of Revelation 2 to 3 as the seven messages to the seven churches. That is, I have not been calling them letters as they are traditionally called. I'm not using the word letters because the seven messages are not written in letter form. The whole of the revelation of Jesus Christ is written in letter form. It's the longest letter in the New Testament. It begins like all other New Testament letters. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace. But the seven messages of Revelation 2 and 3 are not written in letter form. New Testament scholar David Aoun in his massive commentary on the last book of the Bible writes, the seven proclamations exhibit not a single characteristic feature 
of early Christian epistolary tradition, which argues on must have been a result of a deliberate choice. What we have in Revelation 2 to 3 is a new, unique literary form. Scholars use the word genre to describe different literary forms. And what we have in Revelation 2 to 3 is a unique literary genre, a genre which itself is making a statement about who Jesus thinks he is. The genre is a mix of two genres with which the first readers of the messages would have been familiar. The genre is a mix of a, the prophetic oracle on the one hand and the imperial edict on the other hand. Prophetic oracle, imperial edict. The one, the prophetic oracle, comes mostly from the Jewish world. The other, the imperial edict, comes mostly from the Greek world, and in particular, Persia and Rome. In each of the seven messages, we find the phrase, says this. The one who, and then there's some self-description of Jesus, says this. Now, in Greek, it is the word tade lage, says this. In Greek, the tade lage comes at the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. Says this the one who. Most of our translations have the one who, ta ta ta, says this. No, says this the one who. Seven times. Says this the one who. Says this the one who. Says this the one who. Now, I'm bothering with this detail because tade lage was used on the one hand in royal diplomatic letters and edicts in Persia and Rome. Says this, the governor of the territory. Says this, the one who holds the swords of justice. And tare lage was used in the other hand in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, to translate the Hebrew, ko amer Yahweh, thus says the Lord. 250 times in the Septuagint, Ko Amer Yahweh, thus says the Lord, is rendered Tade Lage, says this. So, the genre of the seven messages is a mix of the imperial edict of the Gentile world and the prophetic oracle of the Jewish world. And this new genre is itself making a statement about who Jesus is. The medium is the message. Or better, Jesus himself has created this new genre to tell us who he thinks he is. Tade Lage. The one who, on one hand, is an emperor addressing his subjects, and the one who, on the other hand, is a god addressing his worshipers. He is the royal emperor issuing decrees and edicts befitting his status as the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. And he is the living God, speaking a word of warning and blessing befitting his status as the glorified son of man and beloved son of God. The genre of the seven messages itself proclaims Jesus as emperor of emperor and God of God. And are not emperor and God the two meanings of the word Lord, kurios? 
We call Jesus Lord all the time in our liturgy and in our discipleship, but do we realize what we're saying? In the Greek world, kurios, Lord, is the title given the sovereign Caesar. And in the Jewish world, kurios is the substitute, the, super, the, the superlocution of the sacred name Yahweh. And the genre of Revelation 2 and 3 is itself declaring that Jesus is emperor of emperor and God of gods, which means we had better listen to what he says. Indeed, to whom else should we listen? Even so, Lord, speak. Observation number two. The whole of the seven messages, the whole of Revelation 2 to 3, is packaged in such a way that the package itself is saying something. Again, the medium is the message. And I'll give you a hint. It all turns on the word love. Put more simply, the order of the seven messages is not a coincidence. For one thing, the order follows the route the mailman would take to deliver these messages. But the order is not a, consequent, not a coincidence for another reason. The order is due to the literary device Jesus is employing. We humans need and appreciate communication that is arranged and organized, all the more so for texts that are to be heard, as most of the Bible is, written to be heard. And so the author has to use rhetorical devices geared for the ear to enable the listener to see. Interesting way to put that. Devices geared for the ear in order for the listener to see. Now, the layout of the text itself enables the author to help the hearer or listener get the point. The structure itself, apart from the specific parts, says something, and it says something that the sum, greater than the sum of its constituent parts. Let me be more concrete. Standing back from any one of the single, single messages, I want to take a look at how carefully Jesus has packaged all seven, and the package itself is saying something. Jesus has crafted a new genre for each of the messages to say something, and he's crafted the whole package to say something. Westerners tend to think and read and speak in a linear way, in a straight line. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And the point of the sentence or the point of the paragraph or the document is found in the last at number seven. Middle Easterners, on the other hand, first century and 21st century, tend to think in parallel ways, and in particular, inverted parallelism or chiasm, a, a sideways V, think Canada geese in formation. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And the point of the sentence or the paragraph of the document is found at the pivot of the chiasm at point four. Now, much of the Bible is constructed this way. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is constructed this way. Again, Westerners think in a linear fashion. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and the point is G. 
But Middle Easterners think in a chiasm, A, B, C, D, C prime, B prime, A prime, and the point is D. Now, another way to think about that is a gourmet sandwich. You have bread, you have lettuce, you have tomato, and you have fresh turkey, and then tomato, lettuce, and bread. The top bread is chosen for a particular purpose, to get you ready for the taste of the unique lettuce, tomato, and the turkey. And then the tomato and turkey, and then the last piece, the, the, the closing bread, chosen in a way that nicely absorbs the fluids from the turkey. That makes sense? This gourmet sandwich. Orthodox theologian John Breck has recently argued that the human mind is structured chiastically. Now, why this form? Partly because it's beautiful. Partly because of the completeness. It ends where it begins. It's a good aid for memory. Most New Testament books are constructed chiastically because you can remember them. And it has the value of repetition. Now, when a text is structured chiastically, the structure itself is saying something. Its message as a whole will be found at the pivot for, in concert with the beginning and the end. Now, I think the seven messages to the seven churches are packaged in a beautiful chiasm. Let me show you. The clearest indication is an audio cue at the end of each message. Remember that the last book of the Bible is to be read out loud. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, says John. Yes, we will benefit from reading this document with our eyes, but we will especially see the message when we hear it read out loud. Singer Matt Dave has a new Christmas CD entitled, Do You See What I Hear? Now, each message ends with the exhortation to hear. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and with promises to those who overcome, who remain loyal to Jesus under the pressure to compromise. In the first message, the order is hear and then to the one who overcomes. Second message, hear, then to the one who overcomes. Third message, hear, then to the one who overcomes. But with the fourth message, the order is changed to the one who overcomes and then hear. Then the fifth, sixth, and seventh follow that same order. Now, people listening to the reading of this text out loud would have gotten this cadence. Hear, overcome, hear, overcome, hear, overcome, and then overcome here. Ah. And their, their minds would have been tuned to the fact something has changed. Now, when I heard this audio cue, I then saw what this package is all about. On a day off, I photocopied each of the seven messages and then laid them out on the living room floor. And then I saw and heard, and it became so clear to me. Suspecting a chiasm, I zeroed in on the fourth message, the pivot of the chiasm. As I've already noted, with the fourth message, the ending element changes from here overcome to overcome here. And is this not an audio cue that something is changing, that we've reached the turning point? 
And then Jesus continues on in the other letters with that order of overcome here. Only in the fourth message in 226 does Jesus decide, define what overcome means. The one who overcomes, who keeps my deeds until the end. Overcoming is about persevering to the end when we're under pressure to compromise. The fourth message is the longest of the seven, suggesting that it is crucial for understanding the whole of the package. In the fourth message, Jesus says, 2.23, all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the minds and hearts. All. Yes, in all seven, Jesus says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, but only here does he use this word all. And is this because this is the, mess this is the crucial message for helping interpret the others? Only in the fourth message does Jesus use the sacred word, the sacred self-designation, I am, 2.23. The literal reading is, I am the one who searches. It's the exact construction used in the Gospel of John where Jesus speaks his famous I am sayings. The Greek is ego eimi, ego I eimi, I am. Ego eimi is literally I, I am. Now, why speak in this highway in this message? A cue. Jesus introduces himself in the fourth century, fourth message as the Son of God. In the initial apocalypse, in chapter 1, he's presented one like a son of man. But in the fourth message, Jesus uses for the first time this title not found in chapter 1. And is this not also some audio cue that something has changed? Okay, now focus on message 2 and 6, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And you'll notice that in neither of message 2 or 6 is there a phrase, I have this against you. In the other five messages, Jesus has something against them, not these two churches. Ha, oh, to be a church that Jesus says, I, that doesn't have anything against you. Both messages refer to a synagogue of Satan. Why only these two? None of the others refer to that. Both messages speak of a test. Smyrna, you will be tested. Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of testing. This verb is not found in the other five. In both messages, Jesus speaks of a crown. Smyrna, I'll give you the crown of life. Philadelphia, in order that no one will take your crown. In both messages, speak, Jesus speaks of those who are Jews but are not. He does not speak this way in the other five. In both messages, the disciples think they're suffering inadequacy. Smyrna says, we are suffering poverty. Philadelphia, where we have little power. Jesus thinks otherwise. Smyrna, he says, you are rich. And Philadelphia, they're going to end up bowing down to you. Isn't this cool? Now focus on messages 3 and 5, Pergamum and Sardis. In both messages 3 and 5, Jesus says, but you have some who. He does not speak this way in the other messages. In both, he promises to the, overcomer, to the overcomers something white. Pergamon, you will walk with me in white, Sardis, white garments. Nothing white appears in the other letters other messages. In both messages, the promised blessing involves name, Pergamum, a new name, which is on a stone, which no one knows but the one who receives it. And Sardis, I will not erase your name from the book of life. In both messages, three and five, Jesus speaks of his coming for judgment, or at least for severe correction. Pergamum, or else I'm coming to you quickly. Sardis, I will come like a thief. 
Yes, in message six, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly, but that's for a positive blessing. In these two, it's for a negative warning. So do you see a pattern emerging? Now, focus now on messages one and seven. Are they in parallel? Ephesus, Laodicea. In both messages one and seven, Jesus speaks of love. Ephesus, you've left your first love. Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. In both messages, Jesus speaks of eating. Ephesus, I'll grant you to eat from the tree of life. Laodicea, I will come into him or her and dine with him or her. In both messages, people think highly of the churches. Ephesus is the model church. They think they're the model church for the rest of the churches. Laodicea says we're wealthy and we're rich and we need nothing. In both cases, Jesus sees through the impressions to serious flaws. The warnings in messages one and seven are the most severe of the package. Ephesus, I'll remove your lampstand from you. Laodicea, I will spit you out of my mouth. The judgments come down to the same thing, no longer in relationship with Jesus. It's awful. And the promises in messages one and seven are the most glorious. Ephesus, access to the tree of life. Laodicea, I will come in and I will have you sit down on my throne. Deeply personal intimacy and sharing in the governance of the universe. There's only one blessing greater and it's found in the fourth message. I'll give you the morning star, which by the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we discover is Jesus himself, which is as it should be. If the fourth message is the pivot of the chiasm, its blessing will exceed the great blessings of the two ends of the chiasm. Now, isn't this amazing? So intricately and artfully crafted, making a statement in and of itself. The package itself says something. Now, what the package of the seven messages is saying will be heard when we, inter when we interact with one, seven, and four. First message, the church in Ephesus, by far the most successful of the seven churches most successful, founded by the Apostle Paul, pastored by Timothy, Paul's right-hand lieutenant, and later pastored by the Apostle John. Holy moly. The church in Ephesus had become the epicenter of Christianity. The center had moved from Jerusalem up to Antioch and then to Ephesus. What a church, founded by Paul, pastored by Timothy and John, and it was home to Mary, the mother of the Lord. John apparently brought her with him to Ephesus in fulfillment to the promise that he made at the cross that to Jesus that he would take care of his mother. I've often wondered what Christmas Eve was like to worship at Ephesus. <laughs> Mary sitting there on the front row, and the pastor singing, Mary, did you know? This is the church that all the other churches looked up to. Orthodox, engaged in mission, willing to persevere in hard times. But the one who stands in the middle of the church sees through it to a fundamental flaw. I have this against you, I, Jesus says. You have lost your first love, 2-4. Or as other translations have it, you've forsaken your first love. You've abandoned your first love. For all the good things going on in that church, they were no longer in love with Jesus. 
They were not passionate about Jesus in the way they used to be. That's not so hard to imagine, is it? Caught up in programs, caught up in crossing T's and dotting I's, caught up in being First Church Ephesus, that they fell out of love. Thousands of congregations today losing their passionate love for Jesus and preoccupied with issues that would have never won them to Jesus in the first place. Now, why? Why such a vibrant church falling out of love with Jesus? Seventh message, Church of, the of Laodicea. The wealthiest of the seven churches, the best educated of the seven churches, the best dressed, the most physically fit of the seven churches, and unashamedly proud of it. <laughs> Revelation 3, 7. Here's their motto. I am rich, have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. But the one who stands in the middle of the churches is not impressed. And he sees a fundamental flaw. You do not realize, says Jesus, that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Oh, wow, that had the sting. Laodicea was famous for its banks, all solvent. It was famous for its garment industry. People were well-dressed in purple. It was famous for its medical school that had developed an eye salve to arrest blindness. You are wretched and poor and blind and naked, and you are lukewarm. That was the issue. Lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Now, you may know that Laodicea had no natural water source. Water had to be piped or aqueduct in from the neighboring cities, principally from Hierapolis and Colossae. Hierapolis was noted for its hot, healing water. Colossae was known for its cool, refreshing water. But by the time the water reached uh, uh, Laodicea, both waters had become putrid at best, and when people would drink from those waters, they would vomit. Jesus wants his church to flow with hot, healing water, with cool, refreshing water. And the church in, in Laodicea, in its arrogant self-confidence, had become putridly lukewarm, neither offering healing for the spiritual sick nor refreshment for the spiritually weary. Now, that's not so hard to imagine either, is it? Thousands of congregations, thousands of disciples of Jesus, lukewarm. Why? Why did such a wealthy, educated, well-dressed, physically fit congregation become so lukewarm? Ah, pivot of the chiasm. The fourth message, the message to Thyatira. The one who stands in the middle of the church sees through a major flaw, Jezebel. 2.20, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and who leads my bondservants astray. Now, whether this troublemaker was actually named Jezebel is not clear. But probably Jesus uses the name because she has all the marks of the Old Testament Jezebel. Jezebel of old was a committed Baal worshiper. Baal was the nature god, the fertility god. Jezebel came into the life of Israel through marriage with King Ahab and quickly became a powerful force in the government. She just as quickly imported her worship of Baal. She even persuaded King Ahab to build altars to Baal in Samaria. And she personally underwrote the salaries 
of 850 prophets of Baal to spread her ideas. And any prophet who dared to speak in the name of Yahweh alone, she had executed. Now, here's the point of the history lesson. Jezebel argued that you could worship Baal and Yahweh. Yahweh and Baal. But she knew better. Baal worship and Yahweh worship are so very different that there is no way anyone can embrace both at the same time. She knew the prophets of Yahweh were right. It is Yahweh or Baal, not Yahweh and Baal. It is either or, not both and. And the Jezebel at work in Thyatira was advocating the both and position through what she called the deep thing. She was convincing disciples of Jesus that they could see Jesus, serve Jesus as Lord and the gods of their idolatrous culture. She was convincing disciples of Jesus they could follow Jesus as Lord and still embrace the spirit of the prevailing ideologies. And that, the one who stands in the middle, does not tolerate to tolerate Jezebel and her both-and philosophy is to tolerate the spirit of compromise. It is to tolerate the theology that says you can serve Jesus Christ and other gods, other powers, other movements at the same time. And that, Jesus says, is not possible. I will not tolerate it. In the nature of things, he cannot tolerate it. Because if he tolerates this both-and position, it means he denies who he is for us and to us. The both-and position is out-and-out adultery. It's spiritual adultery, and that Jesus will not tolerate. Bless his name. Okay, stand back and put the chiasm together. Why did the disciples of Ephesus lose their first love? Why did the disciples of Laodicea become lukewarm? Because whether they realized it or not, they had bought in to the spirit of Jezebel, the spirit of compromise. They were committing spiritual adultery. The whole package of the seven messages crafted to say something. It's Jesus' way of saying that he is the lover of our souls. To Ephesus, you do not love me like you used to love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. To Laodicea, those I love, I reprove. In your wealth and health and education, you've left me out of your everyday lives. Why? To Thyatira, because you tolerate the both end. You know it cannot work that way. For every time you adopt the both end, Jesus ends up on the outside. It's either or, either me or the gods of your cultures. So he knocks at the door. He knocks again and again. Seventh letter, Laodicea, Revelation 3.20. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. My voice, the voice of a lover. Because here Jesus is quoting from the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. The voice of my beloved, he knocks at the door. Open up to me, my beloved. Do you see what the chiasm itself is saying? The emperor of emperors, the God of gods, is the passionate lover of our souls. And he will not 
tolerate any compromise arrangement. He will not tolerate his beloved in bed with other lovers. That's why he speaks such a hard way. So much is at stake. Spiritual adultery will lead to spiritual sickness, and spiritual sickness will lead to spiritual death, and Jesus does not want us to die. Whenever we lose our first love, it simply means our soul is compromised in some way. We've allowed someone else or something else to have greater influence in our lives than Jesus. Whenever we become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, it means that we've been seduced. Someone or something else has seduced us and we're more preoccupied with that someone or something else than we are with Jesus. Jesus packages all seven messages of the seven churches as a way to get in our face, right in our face. He's saying, I am in the middle. I, the great I am in the middle, am in the middle. I am the center. And when it comes to who will be the center, it is either or, not both and. In the nature of things, there can only be one center to your soul. No spouse, no children, no grandchildren, no career, no project, no saving account or pension plan, no national cause. Nothing else can be the middle of your soul. Nothing else can bear the weight of being the middle. I, the true emperor and true God, am the passionate lover of your soul. Do not let anyone or anyone else take my place in your soul. Blessed be his name. Amen. Amen.